Welcome back to episode three of Best Movies of the Decade. I'm Rokan. I'm Richard Roper. We've been breaking down these podcasts by genres of the best films of the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to take a look at action films. What does that mean? Under this umbrella, we have the superhero movies, of course, but also action movies grounded in reality, whether it's a heist film or a crime caper. So any film that's uh, driven quite a lot by the action sequences. Let's start with The Dark Knight Rises, 2012. This is the third film in Christopher Nolan's brilliant Dark Knight trilogy. But you know what's interesting? People always talk about the Dark Knight trilogy because these three films do have a a storyline that continues on. But Christopher Nolan didn't start out planning to do three Batman films. He thought with Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, two films from the 2000s, that he had told the story he wanted to tell. And he was adamant that he was not going to do a third film unless somebody came up with a story really worth doing. And Christian Bale, who plays Bruce Wayne slash Batman, felt the same way. So there's a four or five year gap between films. But The Dark Knight Rises really is a crowning achievement. It's a great film. And if people don't remember a lot about this, because we're talking about a film that came out about almost eight years ago now, this is a superhero film that is very much grounded in the real world. Tom Hardy's main antagonist is actually a terrorist who comes to America to disrupt and destroy and murder. Gotham, take control. Take control of your city. This, this is the instrument of your liberation. Tom Hardy basically steals this film, doesn't he? Well, the thing about the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, of course, was always having amazing villains. Heath Ledger won posthumously for his uh, performance as the Joker. He won for Best Supporting Actor in The Dark Knight. And Tom Hardy, who's, one of, I think, one of the great actors of our time. I mean, he has a Brando-esque ability to command the screen, is a very compelling villain. Because like a lot of supervillains and terrorists, he doesn't think he's the bad guy. He thinks he's changing the world in the right way. He's an anarchist, and he doesn't realize that he's the bad guy. He thinks Batman's the bad guy. And that's another interesting thing about this film, Ro. It was brilliant because this film picks up after some tragic events where Bruce Wayne has essentially retired the Batman character, and he has kind of sacrificed his reputation. Commissioner Gordon is pinning a lot of crimes on him just because it's it's a way of actually putting the people of Gotham City, like, they at least know what's going on. They don't realize that the true chaos is just around the corner. Because it's the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs right now. So we'll hunt him. Because he can take it. This is sort of like Godfather 3 and the famous line from Al Pacino as Michael Corleone when he says, every time I'm out, they pull me back in. And yes, you're welcome for me not doing the imitation because that's been <laughs> done by everybody who's ever been in front of a microphone. But that's really the case here again, Ro. It's the classic story of a guy who has seen it all, has, you know, the world has kind of defeated him in some ways. You know, Bruce Wayne is a very depressed, complicated alter ego or, you know, real life character who becomes a superhero. So when the Dark Knight, rises picks up he's done with the with, he's done with the game he's he's basically living in seclusion when he decides that he has to come back as batman to take on this you know horrific monster 
Alfred the butler actually resigns. Michael Caine says, I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of this. You can't beat him. You're not strong enough mentally or physically, you know, because at this point he really is a guy like in his late forties and he goes, you're, you're going to die. You're going to get killed. And I won't be a part of this. I know what this means. What does it mean? It means your hatred. And it also means losing someone that I have cared for since I first heard his cries echo through this house. But it might also mean saving your life. And that is more important. So Christopher Nolan is actually one of the most accomplished directors of his era. Mm -hmm. And to decide he was going to actually do action films, a bit of an upset because that wasn't really being done by A-list directors. Especially at the time, it was thought that if you were going to do a superhero movie, well, you're not a serious, serious filmmaker. This is all about special effects and zap, pow, wham, bam type of action sequences. And he brought a true filmmaker's taste and sensibilities to the Dark Knight movies and really elevated them to, you know, the fact that they are, you know, Oscar worthy films that's now a little more commonplace but at the time it was it was kind of you know a, a new thing for a director of his caliber to do it and that's what made these films so great because christopher nolan didn't think oh i'm making superhero movies he thought i'm making three richly layered complex psychological thrillers that also include action and one of the guys just happens to have a bat suit when he needs it <laughs> but the budget on this film was 250 million dollars which was 10 times what he was used to spending on those other really critically acclaimed movies well you know all directors love it when you give them a bigger toy box to play with and christopher nolan yeah there are special effects in this movie but a lot of that money was spent first of all these you know expansive location shots very involved huge crowd scenes they actually shot a scene in pittsburgh where members of the Pittsburgh Steelers play the Gotham City football team. And that was all done with real actors and real people in the crowd. And he also uh, shot a lot of this with the 70-millimeter IMAX cameras row. So this was one of those films, if you saw it on the IMAX screen, it was actually shot for IMAX. You can watch it in any format, but that is an extremely expensive and painstaking process that really, you know, you have to be, first of all, a technical filmmaker, and then also all the other elements that go into it. So you could see with the perfectionist that Nolan is, and you know, look at that cast, you know, Gary Oldman, Anne Hathaway, Tom Hardy, Marion Cotillard, Joseph Gordon Levitt, Morgan Freeman, and of course Christian Bale. That's an amazing cast. There's a lot of Oscars and nominations in that group, bro. So nobody in this film was saying, Oh, this is a lark. We're gonna do a fun comic book movie. Made a billion dollars though. Well, the stories are, are universal and timeless. These are based on one series of Batman comics, but they're really in a self-contained universe. In fact, this remains the highest grossing standalone superhero movie trilogy because a lot of these other movies are within a universe, including the recent iterations of Batman. He's mm -hmm. part of the DC universe. This is a Batman story. He doesn't get on the phone and call his friend Spider-Man or his new buddy Superman that he just met. He's alone. And, and again... As Ben Affleck's Batman says in a different version of the franchise, when someone says, what's your superpower? He goes, I'm really rich. I mean, that's, you know, Christian Pale is a human being inside a suit. That suit doesn't go magical like Tony Stark's Iron Man costume. It allow him to fly. He uses all kinds of great gadgets and technology. And yes, brute fighting strength. But that's a man. He's always a human being. He doesn't transform like the Hulk. Let's talk about Christian Bale, because this is another example of a guy who's an incredibly accomplished actor. Mm -hmm. And he's putting on a bat suit. 
if Christopher Nolan was not involved from the start, Christian Bale would have not have been interested in doing this. Now, the first when the first Dark Knight was made, Christian Bale had been working as an actor since he was like twelve years old in Empire of the Sun, but he wasn't a mega star. You know, he's actually since then actually the Dark Knight trilogy actually opened up his career, and he's been able to do so many great films since then. But still, it's a little bit of an upset that Christian Bale would ever put on. A goofy costume, you know, and it's not a goofy costume. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> it's a really badass, cool costume, but it's a costume nonetheless. Right. He seems like a makeup guy, right? Vice, yeah. right? Or I'll lose 70 pounds from the machinist, or I'll go full psycho for American Psycho, very method at times, you know, a super intense actor. But that's what makes the merger of actor and performance so perfect because he's playing a Shakespearean character. Here's a guy who literally has a split personality in Bruce Wayne and Batman. And as I've always said, Ro, the most interesting superheroes are the ones who have two distinct sides to them. Tony Stark and Iron Man, even the Incredible Hulk and Dr. Bruce Banner, and certainly Batman slash Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne in some ways is you know more intriguing and more complex than The Dark Knight. You know, there is a bit of a false start in this movie, though, because you've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt introduced as a young police officer, and that character seemed like it was going somewhere. The film sets it up for him to become Robin, essentially. He's going to be Robin, the, what can I call him, the boy wonder, like they did in 1966. <laughs> and that just, for whatever reason, never happened. I mean, the third film, The Dark Knight Rises, pretty much says goodbye to Batman in an actually great way, in an upbeat way, so to speak. And then leaves us thinking, all right, we're going to pick it up now with the, a, a terrific young actor in Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Robin. And that just never materialized. And maybe that's best. Maybe it's best that we just had these three films as a complete and closed storyline. In this collection of the best action movies of the decade, we have two heist films. From 2010, this is The Town. There are over 300 bank robberies in Boston every year. Most of these professionals live in a one-square-mile neighborhood called Charlestown. Do your parents still live here? My mother moved away, my father. You don't get out much. I'm thinking about making a change. Making a change. Either you got heat or you don't. The co-writer, the director, and the star of this movie is Ben Affleck. And, you know, you look at Gone Baby Gone and The Town in Argo, the three feature films that Ben Affleck started his directorial career with. Wow! Those are three four-star movies, bro. This is maybe his best performance as well. And he does play a character he can identify with. He's playing a guy who was a, a pretty big hockey player, but he got hurt and he couldn't become a pro. He's back in his Southie neighborhood. This is set in Boston, Ben Affleck's beloved Boston. And now he's a he's a criminal, you know, and, and people in the neighborhood know it, but he's in one of those neighborhoods like people are like, yeah, but those are good gangsters. You know, they only, they only go after the banks and the bad guys. They don't hurt anybody here. So he is a professional bank robber. Jeremy Renner was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, plays a guy who's basically his brother. He was brought in by Ben Affleck's uh, character's family when they were little kids, and he's the real wild card here. What'd you do? Huh? I don't know what you're talking about. That's my brother right there. What'd you do to get him so cranked I, up? I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You don't know? No. How about, how about now? Uh, chill, chill, now chill, you know? chill, chill. Hey, don't tell me to chill. That's oh, enough. What'd you do? Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. No? Oh. 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 See my face? Don't tell the cops, all right? But just remember, I see those too. But then there's this really fascinating romance that happens in this film. The wonderful British actress Rebecca Hall plays an assistant bank manager. Her bank gets robbed by Ben Affleck's gang. She's a key witness. 
So he just wants to check in on her, see if she actually did pick up anything. It actually turns out she saw a glimpse of a tattoo, and of course she heard some voices. So she might be able to be an incriminating witness. So he at first just wants to keep an eye on her and act like he doesn't know exactly what happened to her, and he kind of tries to give her advice. You're working with the FBI? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? The guy comes by, checks in on you, and gives you a call, that kind of thing? Pretty much. They don't have any suspects, any clues, any leads, anything like that? Not that they told me. He intimated that they were scouring Charlestown, but they were wearing masks, so. I'm sure I'd recognize their voices if I heard them again. I know. Might be harder than you think. Might be harder than you think. But then he starts to fall for her. Which makes things very complicated because the Jeremy Renner character of Jim, he just assumed whacker. And just in case there are no loose ends, that's how this guy approaches everything. So now you've got this sibling dynamic where they'll kill for each other but maybe end up killing each other and this kind of unusual romance but it's a real thing doug really falls for claire are you in love with me yes and john ham gives one of the great performances as an fbi guy trying to crack this case and there is a scene it's one of those quotable scenes it's one of those moments you'll yeah. always have in your mind where John Hamm is interrogating Ben Affleck, and they each know exactly what the other one yeah. knows. Yeah, where each guy is saying, you know, you, you know, you do what you do, and I do what I do, and may the best man win. You dummies shot a guard. Now you're like a half-off sale with big and tall. Every cop is in line. Fortunately, though, for you, this guard, who is two-thirds to a retard, has miraculously clung to life. Now, if it were up to me, and they gave me two minutes and a wet towel, I would personally asphyxiate this halfwit so we could string you up on a federal M1 and end this story with a bag on your head and a paralyzing agent running through your veins. There are just a ton of great performances in this movie. Blake Lively, who, you know, is absolutely gorgeous, talented actress. I don't think she gets enough credit sometimes for what she can do as an actor. And in this film, she plays Doug's ex. She's got a child. She's a junkie. She's desperate. And it's one of those great supporting tragic roles, you know, and he wants to get out of this life and she wants to come with them. And he doesn't want any part of her. You yeah. can't stay. I don't want to stay. I want to go with you. Why can't I change? I could be a different person. You tell me what you want me to do. I'll be whoever you want me to be. And every great heist movie has to have an over-the-top heist. This movie does not disappoint. They decide <laughs> they are going to rob the cash room at Fenway Park. Which is Ben Affleck's cathedral in real life. It makes it so much more entertaining when it's a real place and not just the fictional, you know, Bank of Mr. Money Man or something <laughs> that they're, you know, robbing. So they filmed a lot of this in and around the bowels of Fenway Park, which means it's elaborately choreographed. There's a lot of action sequences, gunfire, all the kind of cool stuff that is an actor director you want to do but it's got such a strong dramatic core that by the time we get to the action sequence we're not even sure who we're rooting for here are we rooting for the fbi or maybe for the bank robbers to get away with it if you haven't seen the town you got to see the town it's one of those movies that 20 30 40 years from now still will stand up yeah it has what i call the repeatability factor row even though i see like 600 movies a year if i'm clicking around and we're halfway through the town. I say, I'm just going to watch this one sequence with Blake Lively and, and Ben Affleck. I, you know, I'll stick around for one more. The next thing you know, you're seeing the end credits and being reminded of how great it is. So it turns out one of the first big action movies of the 2010s is one of the best action movies of the decade. And now here's the first of three superhero films we'll be highlighting from 2018. This is Black Panther. My son, it is your time. Show me my 
respect and bow down. You get to decide what kind of king you are going to be. Don't freeze. I never freeze. The revolution will not be televised. Black Panther is an example of a film that not only is a great artistic and commercial achievement, but it was the perfect movie for its time. Chadwick Boseman plays T'Challa, Black Panther, and Michael B. Jordan is Killmonger. Each of these men believe they are the rightful heir to the throne of Wakanda. Each of these men haunted by the respective violent deaths of their father. So there's this great confrontation between these two great characters. This is your last chance. Throw down your weapons, and we can handle this another way. I lived my entire life waiting for this moment. I trained, I lied, I killed, just to get here. There are a couple of major storylines at work here. We kind of have the classic MacGuffin international thriller plot where everybody wants to get their hands on Vibranium. And Andy Serkis is great as this international terrorist who wants to get a hold of Vibranium and he's going to use it as a weapon of mass destruction. Do you actually know about Wakanda? Um, Shepherds, textiles, cool outfits. It's all a front. Explorers search for it for centuries. El Dorado. The Golden City. They thought they could find it in South America, but it was in Africa the whole time. A technological marvel, all because it was built on a mound of the most valuable metal known to man. Isipo, they called it the gift. Vibranium. We get this great backstory at the very beginning of the film row explaining that billions of years ago, a meteorite containing vibranium, the strongest material known to the entire universe, crash landed in the land known as Wakanda, which gave it all these very special properties. And the, the citizens of Wakanda have decided to essentially hide in plain sight. The rest of the world thinks of them as this agrarian friendly nation, which they are, but they are also more powerful than any other nation on Earth. But... Once you get underneath this magical veil, essentially, yes, it looks like Dubai. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's, it's like it's, Dubai it's got... is designed by Thor's mother as the architect, you know, because it has this amazing futuristic look as well. Question is, do they now take their rightful place as the leader of the world, or continue to live in this bubble? If the world found out what we truly are, what we possess. We could lose our way of life. Wakanda is strong enough to help others and protect ourselves at the same time. If you are not so stubborn, you would make a great queen. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. Ah, see, if, if that's what I wanted. I want to talk a little bit about Martin Scorsese who, and this big kerfuffle there's been about him saying that the Marvel Universe films aren't cinema to him. If I could show him one Marvel Universe movie that I think disputes that, it would be Black Panther. I think this is maybe the most cinematic of all the Marvel Universe movies. When you think about it, there's a lot of a Mission Impossible Bond-like feeling to the scenes. Letitia Wright plays uh, T'Challa, Black Panther's little sister, and she's got all these cool gadgets that she shows him. It's like Q. Right, exactly. Here are your communication devices for Korea. Unlimited range, also equipped with audio surveillance system. 
And then we have these international locales, London and South Korea, and the fights. Now, again, Black Panther, when he puts on the suit, has superpowers, but all the generals in the army and all these great supporting characters that we see in the film, they're human beings who have fighting skills. So this movie probably has fewer super-duper pyrotechnic uh, action sequences than almost any of the other Marvel Universe movies. It's all about these great conflicts between the two men. There's a lot of parental images and parental imagery here, almost like a human version of the circle of life, a lot of spiritual elements. This is a very thoughtful and rich and really deeply provocative film. You know, a lot of essayists have come out and said this is a real cultural moment, not just as a greatly entertaining movie, but something that you know future generations will look back on like they look back on Motown or certain novels by Richard Wright as a real advancement in the art for African-Americans being at the forefront of a story. But for a long time, it was hard to get this kind of a movie made. Wesley Snipes wanted to make a movie about Black Panther some 20 years ago and it never got off the ground because the studios weren't sure that it would be commercially viable. But there was big buzz about this film even before it was made. When it was in development, there was a lot of optimism and it obviously paid off. I, Zuri, son of Badu, give to you Prince T'Challa, the Black Panther. First of all, you have Ryan Coogler, who is a terrifically talented young writer-director who had come off a film called Fruitville Station, which stars Michael B. Jordan, who also has the you know kind of classic villain role in this film. And then Chadwick Boseman, who is a pure classic leading man. You know, he played James Brown. He played Jackie Robinson. He's great in those biopics. He's a serious dramatic actor. But he also has the great, I think, sense of humor. And there's a certain lightness to some of the stories here. So surprised my little sister came to see me off before our big day. You wish. I'm here for the EMP beats. I've developed an update. Update? No, it worked perfectly. How many times do I have to teach you? Just because something works doesn't mean that it cannot be improved. You are teaching me. What do you know? More than you. So yes, it's a superhero film, but it stays right here on planet Earth. You know how I love to talk about Hollywood math? It made its $200 million budget back on the opening weekend, plus $2 million to the kitty. Even set a domestic total gross record. Yeah, and you know the, you, what you're saying is true. The realities of the business world. The poster for Black Panther, I think there were a dozen characters on it. One is white, Andy Serkis, who is you know, a, a great British actor who plays a good supporting role here. That's not a thing you see a lot in movies. And you have these actors, Forrest Whitaker, Angela Bassett, who have carried major motion pictures all taking on roles that maybe require a couple of weeks of filming, and they're on screen for maybe 10 minutes or 15 minutes of the entire film. But that means almost every single scene features a great supporting performance that only enhances how great Chadwick Boseman is as the lead who's in almost every scene. Thank you. You've saved me. You've saved my family. Oh, Anisha. There's nothing to thank me for. It is our duty to... It was my duty to fight for what I love. Black Panther is also the most honored superhero film of all time. That's right, Rose. Seven Oscar nominations, including a nod for Best Picture. And it actually won three Academy Awards, including for Best Score.
just love the music in this film. It's just, it fits the inspirational tone. I mean, you get chills in certain sequences in this movie real. And then for production design. That's now, a, what is that? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. What the hell does that mean? It's the design of the production. So we're talking about everything from sets to props to the overall look. You hear that term used on Academy Award night, and then you see a couple people go up there and accept the trophy, but you don't really think about it when you're watching movies, but it's such a huge element in any great film. And it's the same people every year who win it. Because, you know, when they do that voiceover and they go, this is the 400th yes, nomination exactly. for Joe Fabitz <laughs> and his wife, Emily. <laughs> right? Yeah, so. that's true. I think a really cool thing too, Ro, is Black Panther winning for costume design. All due respect to a lot of the Academy Award winners for best costume design, but so many times it's for period piece films, whether it's, you know, a Civil War film or something set during the French Revolution or the Renaissance. And, you know, in those cases, the costumes are great, but they have a blueprint to work with. Right. There's either paintings or later years photographs or sketches or whatever the case may be. So, like a movie like The Favorite, the costumes are amazing in there, but it's loosely based on a real time period. The costumes in Black Panther are wholly original creations. Wakanda isn't a real country, although we wish it really were. <laughs> of course, there are all kinds of African influences and in the sound and the look and the, the decorations and the paintings and, yes, the costumes. But think about what an achievement it is to say we're going to create a whole new movie world and we're going to dress it up. To me, it's a combination of coming to America and Shaft. What they did in terms of the costume design. Because Somebody probably said that in an elevator pitch at one point. Tell me about this movie. You want to make it Pan-African so it looks regal, right. but you also want to make it American hip, right? And that's exactly what it ended up being. There's a lot of use of leather and bodysuits and things that you would have yeah. seen in 1960s and 70s films. It's such a great original look, Ro, that in Avengers Endgame, a movie we're also going to talk about on this podcast, there's that scene where all the different factions come together. A lot of the characters in the Marvel Universe had never met Black Panther and his fellow warriors before. And when they appear on the screen, they're like, Holy shit! <laughs> These guys are bringing it! So it's really great. I, I just love this film. So as Black Panther proved in the action genre, superheroes were tops at the box office. And the culmination of the most successful franchise takes its place as the best of the decade. All we can do is our best. And sometimes the best that we can do is to start over. That's right, Ro. And, you know, it's kind of weighted in that direction because uh, Avengers Endgame benefits from all of the other Marvel Universe superhero movies leading up to that, including some of the movies even from the 2000s, you know, the Iron Man movies and the Captain America movies. So it's kind of like a greatest hits album. Like the Eagles' greatest hits was their best-selling album, right? But the film itself, it really was, in three hours, a great way to put a final chapter on that long legacy of Marvel films. I hope they remember you. And they will. Yeah, my respect, Stark. And they did a great job because you're talking about juggling more than a dozen characters who have all had their own movies, Thor and Spider-Man and Black Panther. And, of course, Tony Stark, Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr., who I still say should have been nominated at some point for Best Actor. A famous man once said, we create our own demons. Who said that? What does that even mean? Doesn't matter. I said it because he said it. So now he was famous and basically getting said by two well-known guys. Obviously, the action's great, but it was a real human story. And the other thing I really loved about this row was real things happen to real people in these movies. I mean, yes, many of them have almost a kind of immortality, like Thor, 
but many of them are humans who just have a superpower, or in the case of Tony Stark, you know, a, a machine that he puts around. It's a, it's an outfit. He's but he's a real person. So people can die in these movies, and they don't come back like they do in a lot of other superhero type films. As we head into the 2020s, many of these characters will never return, right? Yeah, I mean, there's always a chance. You know, in the case of like Black Widow, Scarlett Johansson, they can do a prequel origin story so you can bring her back i think robert downey jr is really done as tony stark you might see a little cameo of him in some flashback sequence but he's done and he's it's a great great character for him to have perfected but i think he's we're, we're not going to see any more of that i know i said no more surprises but i was really hoping to pull off one last one for avengers endgame it's really interesting, too, because even within a three-hour movie, there were so many other scenes they could have added. And when the movie was coming out on home video, there was a release of this scene that didn't make the final cut that was so powerful. It was right after the death of Tony Stark, where all of the Avengers like took a knee on the battlefield to pay tribute to Tony. And I asked uh, Joe Russo, he's the, the director of Avengers Endgame, the co-director, I asked him why he didn't include that scene, and instead they opted to have the funeral scene. The real moment is that moment where they're all together on the shore, mm -hmm. and you've got basically you know every major character in the Marvel Universe standing together. That felt like a historic moment. And the kneeling, as powerful as it is, and shows great respect to the character, was stealing from that moment. I think it's safe to say that geeks like us will be debating that decision at Comic-Cons for years to come. And now, back to planet Earth. One of these days, baby, you're gonna get blood on your hands. Time to face the music. Baby, we need to get out of here. I have to end this. Are we in bed together now? Baby. 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 Baby, you tell me who does. She a good girl? You love her? Yes, I do. That's too bad. That's Baby Driver from 2017. Oh, did I love this movie. Not just the way it looked, but the way it sounded. Yeah, this is essentially an action musical movie without characters singing. Row. Edgar Wright is a brilliant director, and he wanted to do this film for a long time. In fact, made kind of a short video that was a proof of concept so the studios could see, because like, the concept is pretty crazy. He's the guy who did Shaun of the Dead, right? Yeah, yeah. He's done a lot of comedic stuff, but he's, he's also one of those directors who is such a film geek. So he brings elements of so many different movies into his films, much like Quentin Tarantino. And for Baby Driver, he had this concept of a character played by Ansel Elgort, who's Baby, known as Baby, who's so good here. The switch car is ready, but you want me to hit the long state parking structure at Hartsfield Jackson to get a heist vehicle that stays colder longer? Boost a commuter car, a family car, something that blends in well with morning traffic. Something on the heavy side, in case we need to ram the cops off the road, to Escalade, Yukon, Avalanche, whatever. It needs to be ready for an 8.30 start in the a.m. Questions? And he almost has a superhero origins type of story. I have this uh, hearing thing. I was in an accident when I was little. Is that what happened to your mom? Yeah. Yeah, my dad. I miss her. He was in a car accident. His parents were killed, and it left him with uh, tinnitus, I guess, a very, very advanced case of it, where his, he's almost constantly in pain unless he's listening to the songs that kind of make him move and come out of his shell. You There's an early sequence set to Harlem Shuffle 
where Baby, the character Baby, all he's doing is going on a coffee run to bring all the coffees to the to the big guns in this little crime outfit he's a member of. And he ducks under construction workers and goes around a pole and sees his reflection in the window. And it's almost like a Hitchcock sequence, row or a Scorsese sequence, because it's one long, unbroken shot. To the heart of the Baby Driver was nominated for three Oscars. You got film editing, sound mixing, and sound editing. They didn't win any of those. They should have because this is one of the best audio experiences you'll ever have watching a movie. Absolutely right. This film is choreographed from start to finish. So Ansel Elgort's baby is this savant driver. He is the best getaway driver you've ever seen. So he is hired by Kevin Spacey, plays the crime boss, and he's, he has a rotating group of bank robbers, including John Hamm and Isaac Gonzalez, who are a romantic coupling, Jamie Foxx, John Bernthal from The Walking Dead. So while the hardcore criminals are in the bank with their shotguns and their masks and taking you know as much money as they can and running out of the bank, they're waiting for them is Baby Driver, a baby who then takes them the hell out of there faster than the speed of sound. The songs that Edgar Wright chooses, he goes deep into like the catalog. Uh, Hocus Pocus, Focus. Now, I don't know, is Hocus Pocus the name of the song? And Focus <laughs> is the name of the group. That was that crazy song where they're, and one of the few hits, row I think, that featured yodeling. And another another term that gets bandied about a lot, Row, that people might not quite understand is practical effects versus special effects. Practical effects means what we're seeing on the screen was actually created on a set or on location. They're not using CGI. They're not using green screen. They're not using all that wizardry. So there's car chase sequences here. This was filmed almost entirely in Atlanta where they're really on the streets and there's this amazing sequence of cars and going backwards and reversing and all of that. And all of that was done with practical effects. Very few special effects shots. There's a few. There's another great scene in a parking garage, which is actually the parking garage of the Atlanta Falcons practice facility. So they can only do that at night because you don't want to run into, you know, Matty Ryan coming around the corner <laughs> there. And it's just it's just brilliant. I just love the action. And Ansel Elgort has that perfect combination. I mean, he's obviously super cocky when he's driving, but he's such an innocent when he's not driving or listening to the music. And there's also this very sweet romance when Baby goes into a diner and he's served by a waitress named Deborah, who is played by the lovely and charming Lily James. So when was the last time you hit the road just for fun? Yesterday. Oh, I'm jealous. Sometimes all I want to do is head west on 20 in a car I can't afford with a plan I don't have. Just me, my music, and the road. I'd like that, too. Oh, we love her from Downton Abbey, don't we? Yeah, she's just a charmer, and their you know their romance is real cute. Although, like everything else in Baby Driver, things that happen between them are not the usual route a movie like this will take. And I love that too. That there's this very bittersweet tone to the whole film. The cast is great too. You got John Hamm in one of his best performances on screen as a good guy, bad guy, bad yeah. guy, good guy. Right? They, yeah, it, that's exactly right. I mean, he's a hardcore criminal. Although we learned a very interesting thing about his backstory at one point. Uh, and he didn't exactly grow up in a criminal background. Jamie Foxx is the real ruthless psychopath in this film. And he's great. When you think about someone like Jamie Foxx, who's been around for so long, Ro, and, and, we, and we know him and we love him, and he's you know, done motion pictures and TV and Oscar winner, and yet he disappears into the supporting performances, and we really hate him. Here's the moment where the Jamie Foxx character lays out what he thinks is John Hamm's backstory and clearly gets it right. Tell me if I'm way off, buddy. You were stockbroker. 
Maybe a different life, maybe kids. You stack your paper, but you say shit like work hard, play harder, but you play a little too hard. You rack up debt, the type of debt that'll make a white man blush. Maybe you get into a little trouble, maybe you get your hand caught in a corporate cookie jar. Maybe you leave and run off to the desert, maybe with your favorite lap dancer in tow. Maybe you disappear into a world consistent of three things, money, sex, drugs, and action. I never hate Jamie Foxx, even <laughs> when he does kind of play a bad guy in movies, which is not that often. He always is likable. In this movie, you really despise his character, which just tells you how great he is. Yeah, absolutely right. John Bernthal also, who's a, such a sweetheart of a guy, plays a similarly twisted guy. You mentioned it. These are the bad guys within the bad guys. The good bad guys are afraid of the bad bad guys. Just think that he thinks he's better than us. He wants to sit there in his car, keep his white shirt clean while the rest of us, we roll in the dirt. One of these days, baby, you're gonna get blood on your hands. And you're gonna find out that that shit don't wash off in the fucking sink. So for people who haven't seen it, please check this film out, Baby Driver 2017. It's a great film. That does it for this episode of Best Movies of the Decade. On our next installment, we're gonna be looking at the best musicals and or comedies. And please don't forget to subscribe to the Best Movies of the Decade on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast provider. You can always check out Richard Roper's reviews at suntimes.com or listen to me on The Rokan Show weekday afternoons, 3 to 7 p.m. Central Time at WGNRadio.com. We'll see you next time.